The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 12, verse 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. The text that we're studying this morning is one of Jesus' most famous statements. In most of your Bibles, it's probably called the Great Commandment. Many of us, no doubt, know this commandment by heart or these commandments by heart. But I wonder how many of us, when this, this commandment is read or when we repeat this commandment to our children or to somebody else, I wonder how many of us tremble. When we do so, I wonder if we understand how troubling and concerning this verse actually is. Jesus today, after he announces that the greatest two commandments in all the law, he he, he narrows them down. And when he does it, the last verse of our section of scripture here says, and no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) it has been said that any darn fool can make something complex, but it takes a true genius to make something simple. Jesus was a genius. Over the past few weeks, Jesus has been answering really, really, really complex and difficult questions, and he's done so simply. And today's no different. If you read the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Torah or the Law, There are 613 different laws that Moses wrote to guide the people into living a life lived close to God. This is what a righteous life looks like. This is what a good life looks like. This is what a life lived near to God and as a a window into a life lived with God for outsiders. This is what human flourishing looks like. 613 different laws. The first five books are called the law of God because in them you find God's rules for living inside his community. Every community in the world is governed by laws, whether written or spoken or just cultural, you know, piece of the cultural pie that they live in. Every culture is organized around rules. Every society has laws to govern its citizens' behavior. In our text today, Jesus takes 613 laws of Moses 
and he reduces them down to the irreducible two. He uses Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. That's where he gets uh, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He uses that, and then he combines it with Leviticus 19.18. Okay? These two texts out of the first five books of the Bible, Jesus combines them together, and he says this, if you keep these two, you keep the rest. These two are the most important. If you keep them, you're going to keep all the other ones. Now, I said that was troubling. Why is that troubling? It's troubling because of its simplicity. Jesus unfolds for us today an ethical code that is not very complex. Love God, love others. Imagine, can you imagine for me, just for a minute, can you imagine what our world would look like today if everyone obeyed these two simple rules? Love God, Love other people like you, like, your, like you love yourself. What would our world look like? What would our news look like? Our news would be boring, actually. Right? Well, another person helping another person. Right? Do you realize that there's different ideologies out there? Some that just say, obey God and take life. Do you realize there's ideologies out there that say, do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. Jesus says, here it is. Love God. Love others like you love yourself. Why is that troubling though? See, this ethical code, through its simplicity, it's also devastating. If you have 613 different rules, it's pretty easy to claim ignorance when you forget one or when you break one. Oh, I didn't know. It's been a while since I read Leviticus. My bad. I don't have it memorized, right? You get pulled over. Tell me you don't do this. You get pulled over. In your mind, you're going, I could could be going to jail right now. Like you're thinking in your head, like, I might not have paid that parking ticket. I might have a warrant. This is possible right? You're, 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 maybe it's just me. (laughs) I just got a guilty conscience. I'm going through my mind. I'm going to jail right now. I have no idea what happened. I just stick my hands out the window. (laughs) Take me. I did it. Right? Why? Because our legal code like is ridiculous, right? If you want to bust me, I'm probably doing something that's, that's wrong. But Jesus Take, and I can claim ignorance. Oh, I didn't know. I turned right on. You can't do this. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. And it's been a long time since I took driver's head, whatever. Right? I can claim ignorance. But when Jesus says, here they are, love God, love other people like you love yourself, you're not going to, oh, I forgot about that one. Right? Narrowed down to two. Jesus makes the law of God brutally simple. You want to live in my community? Here's the two rules. Love God, love others. If that's it, and we break those rules, none of us could honestly stand before a judge and claim ignorance or forgetfulness as a reason we broke them. So today we're going to kind of dig down into these rules and see what God requires of us. 
And by us, I mean all of humanity. If Jesus was who he says he was, the son of God, then all of humanity is under his rulership. That means all of his laws are universal. They're not just for Christians. They're not just for Americans. They're not just for good people. His laws are over all, right? If, as American citizens, we're governed by our laws. We're not governed by, you know, any other country's laws. But God, because he's supreme, his laws are universal, global laws. Everyone is judged and held accountable to his laws because he is the creator. They affect every people group and culture of the world. So today we're going to see a couple things. We're going to see what does God require of the world? What does he require of them, of us? What does he expect from us? Or if you like to think of it this way, when we stand before God after we die or after Christ comes back again, what will God judge us by? Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've been witnessing Jesus being questioned. That's why we're calling it questioning Jesus. Jesus is being questioned over and over and over by people, right? And they're, they're coming to him. We've got him on the right and the left of the political spectrum, trying to get him in trouble. We have the right and the left religious spectrum, trying to get him in trouble. And Jesus has been challenging them and he's been answering them in such a way that he's really made them look stupid several times. He's really um, opened their ignorance for everyone to see. He wasn't very sweet. He wasn't very kind. Last week we saw him just go, let me tell you why you're wrong. Right? He was very abrupt. He had some sharp edges for them the last few weeks because, uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, he embarrassed them and he made them look pretty stupid because they were coming to him, questioning him, not as genuine seekers, but as people who were trying to entrap him. They're trying to get him killed. They're trying to bust him and make him look stupid. But there's another reason why as well. And this is what I was... uh, kind of intrigued by as I read the scripture today. There's a lot of people out there and, that, that don't want people to argue, right? Just can't we all get along? And anytime somebody maybe aggressively answers a question or maybe makes somebody look silly or look stupid or maybe even uses satire, uh, it's kind of like, oh, that's offensive. We shouldn't do that. But Jesus uses those tricks of the trade of argument uh, for a reason. And today we're going to see one of those reasons is because When Jesus makes an argument against the faith look really stupid, he encourages some honest onlookers. Some people, you know, it's easy. I I used the example last week. It's easy to sit as a freshman um, in a philosophy class or maybe in a comparative religion class and to hear the professor make some really great arguments and be almost convinced by them, or maybe you are convinced by them, that make the faith of Christianity sound really stupid. And you can walk away and go, man, that professor's so smart. But what the professor's not telling you is, is there's other professors and probably professors that are equally qualified or more so qualified than he is. And they have the answer to those questions. They have even better questions to ask. And if you study these guys, you're not going to walk away near as confused. And sometimes if you have one student, and I remember uh, I was, I'm, I'm quite an argumentative person. Okay. 
And when I was in, I went, I went to Augustana and I was taking comparative religions and I'd only been a Christian for a year or two. And the Bible was on fire for me. I was just taking it in and I was loving it. And, uh, every time my, my professor, he seemed, uh, he, he was going with a, like the liberal, uh, train of thought, uh, of being very critical of the Bible. And, uh, every time he'd make a statement, I would raise my hand. I'd be, Oh, I just read this week and I'd quote this scripture for him and I'd, I'd challenge his thoughts and I'd argue with him. And I remember by the end of the semester, um, uh, first of all, I didn't know all this was going on, but by the end of the semester, I'd go, Oh, and I'd hear the class go, Oh, And we got through like half the syllabus. My class got through half the syllabus of everybody else that year because he would make a statement that should be, you know, they thought just universally accepted, pretty smart guy. But because I was in the Bible and I think the spirit was working, I'd raise my hand and I would challenge it and I would argue it. And I had people come up to me after the class and go, man, I I've thoroughly enjoyed being in this class because of the way you challenge things. And then what really shocked me was when I turned in my final at the end and I, you know, I got my final back this past or this, uh, Professor retired that year, and he, on it, he wrote, thank you for this class. This is the most enjoyable class in my 20-year professor. And I was like, what? I thought you hated me. We argued nonstop. And there's a, so there's a reason, and sometimes there's a good reason to argue. Sometimes there's a good reason to, I don't know, to, to make someone look silly, to make an argument look silly. And Jesus is going to show us specifically right here. So let's jump into our text this morning. We are at chapter 12. Verse 28, you can open it up on your app. Sacred City has an app or your Bible app. You can follow along with us. We read from the ESV. It's a word-for-word translation, one of the best around today. Here we are in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up. Now, let me just tell you this. Who are the scribes? The word scribe and lawyer are synonymous. Okay? Now, don't think lawyer as in um, argument, argumentative or prosecutor. Think letter of the law. Most lawyers uh, will tell you um, their, law, their, their job is not as sexy as it looks on TV, right? It's a lot of legal code. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of knowing the letter of the law. And a scribe did just that. They were experts in the Torah, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. They were copyists. So they, the reason we have a very accurate Old Testament, we can give credit to the Spirit of God guiding people, but also to the scribes. They transcribed word for word on papyrus, um, you know, very detailed, very exacting, uh, getting the Old Testament passed down through generations. And they were absolute experts on the law. Okay, so that's what the scribes are. And they like to argue about it, right? They like to talk about it. They were Like I said, lawyer and scribe, same thing. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up, and they're also part of the Sanhedrin, came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. So you see that? The scribe, he comes up, he hears Jesus interact with the Sadducees. Jesus makes them look stupid. He goes, wow, Jesus is smart. He sees them interact with the Herodians and the Pharisees. Wow, Jesus answered them well. Jesus is smart. He's intrigued by Jesus. Jesus shuts down an argument on the left. He shuts down an argument on the right. He shuts down political arguments. He blows these arguments out of the water. And there's somebody on the outside going, I should probably listen to this guy. I'm intrigued. 
this guy is intelligent. This guy's got good arguments, right? So then it encourages this man, this scribe, to bring his own difficult question, except here's the cool thing. This guy is bringing a genuine question. The other questions from the Herodians and the Pharisees and Sadducees had all been created behind closed doors. They were exacting questions meant to get him in trouble, put him in between a rock and a hard place and make him answer and he's going to get in trouble. And Jesus brilliantly didn't. This one is a genuine question from an honest onlooker who this is a common question of the day, especially for a scribe. How do, how do you, 613 laws. How do you parent out of that? Son, discipline time. Why? You broke law number 604. Right? 197, you're guilty of it. We need to talk. It's really difficult. So a lot of people want to narrow this down. Make it simple for me. Get it down. And they used all kinds of different ways to, to make. Many of them ended up being kind of like the golden rule. But nobody in the history of the Jewish religion had ever done what Jesus is about to do today. Connect love of God and love of neighbor. So let's keep reading. Jesus, or this man asks him in verse 28, which commandment or which law is the most important of them all? Now, can you imagine going to a lawyer today? Hey, an American lawyer, which law is the most important? It's difficult, right? It's a difficult question. This is a difficult question for Jesus as well. Verse 29. Here we go. Jesus answered him. So Jesus doesn't, I mean, Jesus sees a genuine question, even though it's difficult, and he answers him. The most important is, this is where he quotes from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now stop. That right there is called the Shema. Okay? Every Jewish person would pray that in the morning, and they would pray that at night. It's one of the most, it's the foundational prayer. It's similar to, for Christians today, we'd pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. For the Jewish person, it is, uh, hear, O Israel, hear, that's the word Shema. Our Lord is one. It doesn't mean uh, one in unity. It means there is only one. That there is only one God in all the world, and it is the Lord. It is God himself, the God of Israel. He quotes that, and then look, and then he quotes the next verse, which says this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus is saying, here it is. What is required of mankind? What is the most important law? What is the most important commandment? What is your top priority in life? Here it is. Love the Lord your God. Now, this is what God expects of humans. Is that an okay expectation? Is it okay for God to require love from people? To I use this word cautiously, to demand love from people. There's places in the Bible that say God is a jealous God, that he wants our love to be for him and for him alone above everything else in life. This has led many people, including people like Oprah, 
to turn away from God and say, I jealousy is petty. God is petty. He's insecure. I don't want a God who's jealous. I have friends that argue with me uh, from the, about the faith and they send me text messages like that. You think jealousy is a good attribute? Don't you think it's a little immature? But think of it like this. God existed before anything else. That's what the Shema means. Hear Israel, hear people, God is one. There's only one God. One God. He is the only God. It means he's the only real God. We capital G God, right? And God exists in what theologians call a trinity. Okay, you're not going to find that word in the Bible. It's how we describe what the Bible teaches us. That there is one God, but he exists in three different essences. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. And I got to do some pre-work here. We're going to dig down in this. We got to do some work. Because in Christianity, Christianity is the only religion in the world that has this. Listen, a unified community as God. No other religion on the face of the planet has ever had and currently has a unified community as God. Now, why is that important? That makes us really unique because God is in himself a unified community. That means, let me just build something out for you. God is in himself already, infinitely, eternally happy. He's a happy God. He exists inside his own loving, unified community. That's why the apostle John later will write, God is love. How could you love if, you, if it's just you? There's no trinity. If there's no community, how could one God be loving? Who does he love? Right? But in the Trinity, the Father loves the Son, the Spirit. They all work together in a loving, unified community, humbly submitting to one another, loving one another. And so God exists in himself as a happy, unified, loving community. So that means God has always been happy, and God has always been lo fully loved. So, when God creates everything, hear this, God doesn't create humans and doesn't create the earth and the planets and the galaxies. He doesn't create this because he's lacking love. Right? God is in heaven. It's lonely being God. I need minions. Poof, he creates minions to worship him and love him. That's not, God is like a parent. God is like a couple in heaven. He's like a couple who loves one another so much that out of this loving union comes children. Their love creates children. God wants more people, wants people to share in the love of the Trinity. And so he creates so that he can love them. So they can participate in this loving community. God doesn't create anything because he needs anything. He's fully loved. He isn't needy. He doesn't need our love. He creates so that he can love. 
Now, think about it that way. If God is already infinitely happy, he's already existing in an infinitely loving community, and he creates just because he loves and he wants to share that love, is it wrong to expect his children to love him? Parents, do you expect your children to love you? I think we all would say, yeah, we expect them. And now guess what? We're sinners. We jack up our children, right? We teach them things like Big Ten football is equal to SEC football. Like they should not believe us. We indoctrinate our children in bad ways like this, right? Sorry, I had to do that. But we are, we are damaging our children in many different ways because we're sinners. But God is a perfect, loving father. Think about it. God always does what is good, right, and perfect. God has never failed you. God has never hurt you. God has never wounded you. God has never done anything wrong to you. He's only done what is good, right, and perfect. So is it okay for that God to expect you to love him? Don't we believe that love should be reciprocal? If it's poured out, it should be brought back. I think we do. So, we have been created by love to love. That is our law. That's why we were made. That's what we're made. That's what, what are humans for? To love God and to love others. That's what we're for. Why do we build cities? Why do we invent things? To love God and to love others. That's why we do it. What are you doing? What is your occupation in life? Does it serve that purpose to love God and to love others? This is human flourishing. This is what God expects from us, and this is what we will be judged by at the great white throne judgment. Did we love? Now, what does that mean? Because that should cause all of us to ask some questions like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Did I love? Like, what does that look like? Love with what? Love how much? It's even how do I love God that I haven't seen? That's kind of a difficult question. And look what Jesus says. How are you to love God? How much? With what? Look at verse 29. And you shall love. And that word is agapeo. It's the type of love that's one way from God. We're to love God like that, the way he loves us. With what? All, oh Lord, you should probably circle that word. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now what's interesting here is Jesus takes that Shema from Deuteronomy and he adds a word to it. In Deuteronomy, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
And Jesus kind of sneaks another word in there. He sneaks the word mind. Intellect. Consciousness. And I want to do really quick, really quick words here because I think there's, there's a lot of importance. You could study this for your whole life. I would encourage you, if you want to do a good study on it, check it out. It's a great, I mean, it's the most important thing we could study, honestly. Right? But let's just drill down in a couple words here. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all, basically what he's doing, let me just give us a warning. He's not trying to separate humanity into what are we? We always try to do this. Are we, are we a soul? Are we a spirit? Are we an intellect? Are we our heart? Are we our will and our volition? Jesus isn't trying um, like, like a surgeon to kind of cut us open and show us what's inside of us. Okay, he's not doing that right now. He's really, if we had a big, just look at it from a big picture, he's saying, love God with all your everything. Everything you are, love God with all of it. But he does use some specific words that I think are helpful and we need to check out. The first one he says is love God with all your heart. And that word there is cardia in the Greek. It's cardia, right? Cardiologists, we get this. Cardia means heart. It's the locus of a person's feelings. It's the knowledge of right and wrong. It's the source of our desires, Think about that. What do you desire more than anything? Happiness, peace. What is that desire? He says, love God with all your desire, with all your heart, your feelings. Okay. Then he uses the second word, love him with all your soul. And that word is psyche. We get that, right? This is the immaterial part of a person. It's the... This is big word. It's the actuating cause of an individual's life. What do I mean by that? Who are you? What makes you you? Why are you different from your neighbor? Why are you different from your spouse? What makes you you? Where do you find you? What have you built your identity on? What is your identity? Psyche. Love God with all your identity, with all you are. Then he uses this word, Oh, I don't even know how to say it right. Dianoia, which is mind. And this is all your thoughts, your faculty of reasons. This is what do you meditate on? If you have nothing else to think about, where does your mind go? If you're taking a long walk by yourself, where does your mind go? Money? Love? Spouse, dating, whatever. What is the locus? What, 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 what brings your thought? What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? Jesus says, love God with all your mind. And then lastly, he says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. And this is your, your capability. This is your will, your power, and your might. This is your chooser. This is your backbone. Jesus says, love God with all, not a little bit, not 50%, not 25%, not one day a week. Love God with all your everything. And then he says this in verse 31, 
The second is this, you shall love your neighbor. That's anyone you're in close proximity to. You love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And now what Jesus has uniquely done for the first time ever was he combined love for God and love for man, love for God and love for neighbor. And he put them together. And what's interesting, if you look at the 10 commandments that Moses gave us, the first four are about loving God and honoring God. And the last six are about loving man and honoring man. Don't kill, don't steal, right? Those, and Jesus puts these things two, two together in such a way that he said, he's saying this, loving God is not some ethereal thing you do. It's not like, I, I love God. Just this emotive thing. But love for God looks like love for neighbor when you encounter neighbor. Love for God looks like love for spouse when you encounter your spouse. Love for God looks like love for enemy when you encounter enemies. Do you hear this? This is very pragmatic. It's so easy for us to think that love is just, ooh, feelings. You know what? I'm kind of into God. Yeah, I love him. I love my bro up there, right? Big guy upstairs. Love him. Love you right? But then when I, when I encounter a neighbor, I can be bitter. I can be resentful. I can be mean. And I can say, well, but I love God, man. If that person loved God, I'd probably like them a little bit more too. Right? No, no, no. Jesus is saying this is pragmatic. Love for God looks like love for neighbor. Love for God looks like love for the weak, love for the least of these. This is why it's so confusing when someone says, I love God, and then demeans women. That's confusing because your love for God should change the way you relate to women or demeans men. Your love for God should change the way you relate to authorities, should change the way you relate to leaders. Your love for God, Oh, I love God. And then you walk by a poor person or a homeless person and you mock them or you look away from them. Jesus is saying your love for God hasn't gone deep enough. Your love for God should compel you and motivate you to love others. He's connecting these two in a painful way, in a simple way that's devastating, should be devastating. And look at verse 34. The scribe, I'm sorry, we'll we'll say 32. And the scribe said to him, wow, this lawyer, what's the most important law? Jesus nails it in the moment, spontaneously, brilliantly. And the scribe goes, yeah, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one and there's no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he, the, the scribe is making connections here. Everything you do on Sunday, none of it matters if it doesn't come from love from God and love for neighbor. 
your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your praying to God and saying, I'll never do that thing again. All of those vows you make to God, none of them are as important as loving God and loving other people. If your religion keeps you from loving God and loving other people, it's a faulty religion. Keeps reading or keeps saying. And when Jesus, so this guy commended Jesus. Wow, you're right. When Jesus busted all the other guy's argument, they walked away sad. This scribe, Jesus answers brilliantly, and he's like, you're right. Look what Jesus says to him. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Why did this answer stop people in their tracks? Does it stop us? Or listen, do you read this and go, it's just about love. I'm so thankful that all the Old Testament could just be thrown away and all we got to do is just love. It's just all about love. Put it on my profile. Anybody ask me a question? I'm just going to say it's about love. It's just about love. Or does this answer, does it bring any trepidation to your heart? Does it concern you? Does it move you? If it doesn't, if we go, whoo, so glad we're just about love, then you don't understand how controversial, how cutting, how concerning this statement of Jesus really is. Now, why? Why should this concern us? This is why it should concern us. Jesus' answer over 2,000 years ago cuts against the grain of the two prominent ways human beings relate to God. First, we have what I'll just call the moralist. Now, when I use labels like that, what usually happens is everybody goes, oh, those people. But I really, so nobody considered, nobody walks around going, I'm a moralist, buys the t-shirt. But the way we relate to people and the way we relate to others can be in a moralistic way. How do you know if you relate in a moralistic way? Moralists... They might not say this, but they relate to God and to people according to the rules. They think when they see someone in trouble, when they see someone begging for money, their first thought is he made bad decisions. That person probably didn't obey the rules, probably addicted to something, probably made foolish choices as a child. Could be. We don't know that for sure. But a moralist, that's how they think. There's right and there's wrong. Good people obey. Good people follow the rules. And here's what it works with God. If you obey God's rules, God will bless you and give you a good life. So the reason I'm prosperous 
isn't just because I'm, you know, born in this country and had a good, it's because I made good decisions. It's because God blessed my hard work. See, a moralist connects these follow the rules, be a hard worker, and then blessing from God. Obey the rules. And then one day, one day you die and you go to heaven and you stand before God and he's going to look at your life and say, better than most, come on in. The heck? Literally, fly landed on me. Those are the nastiest things in the world, I swear. (laughs) Let me just say that. Fall in Iowa, these slow moving flies, so nasty. I know they come back from the dead when it warms up or something. They just come out like zombies, super slow. You're like, that was in the text. You didn't see that? Came right out of the text. Exegesis 101. Moralists, be good. God will bless you. Obey the rules. Your life will go well. Don't obey the rules. It won't go well for you. That's the first way that we relate to God. Second way, and I'm just using big terms here, the relativist. Now, what is a relativist? A relativist thinks that the rules are all subjective. That's true for you. That's not true for me. That's okay for you. That's not okay for me, or that's not okay for me, or that's not okay for you, and it's okay for me. Everything's subjective. It's not really about rules. It's about love. What we really need to do is stop talking about rules and just start talking about love. They don't want to talk about rules. They don't want to talk about commandments. They don't want to come to church and hear about these things. They don't want to hear about the justice of God or the wrath of God against sin. They don't want to hear sin. They just want to talk about love. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, and it almost seems silly, but here's the reason. Many of us, especially especially the younger generation, this generation, the generation that's coming up right now, and I'm just going to say coming up right now in public schools, this is the water they're swimming in. Love is accepting everything and everyone. Love has no rules. And I'm going to, first off, I want to say how silly it sounds to be saying that this morning after we just witnessed what's happened in Paris this week. Because only if you have rules do you get to condemn what is considered evil. Rules tell us what is evil. And what happened over there is, abs- and, and in Palestine and all the other attacks that went on, that's evil. And we can say it's evil because we have rules that tell us otherwise. Now, you're like, oh, Justin, it's not about rules. It's just about some feeling inside of us. We should just have this genuine knowledge. We should just have love. It's not about rules. Let me use this example. You come over for dinner. I like to have people over for dinner. We sit around. You know what? Honestly, in a lot of ways, I don't like the rules either. It's a lot of ways that I want other people to obey the rules, and I don't want to have to obey the rules. I'm pretty much a good guy. Rules aren't for good guys. They're for psychos, right? You come over. We're talking about that. We're having great steak, right? 
We're, we're having good wine. We're enjoying it. We're talking about, yeah, those legalists out there. They just want to hammer everybody and put them in a box. And they don't know how to love people. And they just demean everybody else. It's just all about love. We're like, yes, it's all about love. Rules, rules are ridiculous. And you get up, go to the bathroom, and you leave your phone on the counter. And it's the new iPhone 6 Plus, and I look down at 6S Plus, and I didn't want that bad boy. I put it in my pocket, and you leave. You forget about it. You get home, you find out. When did my phone call? What happened to my phone? Now, do you have a, once you find out that I stole that phone from you, do you have a problem with that? Do you, are you offended? Are you hurt? Do you call back and go, hey, it's all about love anyhow. No big deal. I'll get another one. Right? You're offended. You're hurt. Why? Because I broke the rules. I stole from you. And what's interesting is that those rules are, are intimately connected with love itself. By stealing, I am not loving you. See, the rules are connected with the actual process of loving. You're angry, you're upset because I broke a rule. I stole from you. Now, this is what's interesting. You cannot have love without rules. You can have rules without love, but you cannot have love without rules. That's why this argument here from Jesus shuts everyone up. Hear me. I think every person in this room, you're going to fall into one of those categories. You're going to lean towards being a moralist or you're going to lean towards being a relativist. I hope you can assess yourself and say, which way do you fall? But what shuts everyone up is everyone sees, Jesus says to the moralist, your rules are not enough. You can't just obey the rules. You got to obey the rules out of love. Love has to be the center and the motivating factor. And to the relevist, he says, a vague feeling of love is not enough. You got to obey the rules because love always obeys the rule. The most loving thing to do is obey the law of God. Always. Breaking God's commandments is always antithetical to loving people. Why do we give 10% of our money, Christians in this room and members of this church? Why do we do that? Because it's the most loving thing to do. By giving up our wealth, 10% of our wealth, the church, the gospel can move forward. We can plant churches. We can help other people who are less fortunate than us. We can give money to other nonprofits outside of organizations. We can, humans flourish when you give your money to the church. When you break that commandment, it's not a loving thing to do. Every, I could do that on every commandment. Every single commandment is about love. Every do and don't in the Bible is ultimately about loving God and loving other people. This is why it shuts everyone up and they just walk away. You mean it's not just about the rules? Some of them, in our four years here as a church, we have many people come into our church and they are rules people. They like my preaching. 
because it sounds kind of harsh to them or something. They're like, oh, it's on edge. He's just preaching the word. I want to hear some of this. And they stick around for us. And then we start talking about this moralism stuff. It's just not about the rules. It's not about just doing the right thing and just obeying the law of God. There's something deeper than that. That many of us, our pride, we look around at others and we've been obeying the rules and we've been doing pretty good. And our pride thinks, you know what? We're better than most. And we think there's this law right here and it's hard, but it's hard, but I can do it. Like it's a hard law to be good, to be a really good person. It's difficult, but God just made me good enough that I can actually do that. And if you would just do this, you would have a better life like me. And this is the moralist. And what Jesus is doing here is he's going, no, 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 no. That's not the law. This isn't the standard. Loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, loving your neighbor like yourself perfectly. That's the law. That's the standard. And the moralist should come face to face with that and look up at the wall and say, I can't get over that wall. I need help. And the relativist who doesn't think there's a wall, It's just all about love and just feeling and just ooey gooey feelings and being nice to one another. And you say, no, 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 no. There's a law. There's a standard. But let's get in. Let me, let's just do this quick inventory on ourselves here real quick. As I close. Jesus says, this is the most important thing in the universe. This is what you'll be judged by. This is how you get into the kingdom of God. You got to clear the wall. This is what it looks like. Heaven is God's kingdom. He is the king. His kingdom is a kingdom where people love him and they love one another. So no one can enter his kingdom without being a lover. So let's do an assessment. How well are you loving? Jesus says, love God with all your heart. This is emotions and relations. When was the last time your heart was stirred by being with Jesus? What's the temperature of your heart when you think about God? Cold and distant? Do you feel like he's a mean father with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face? Feel like he's open. You can come and sit on his lap. Feel like he's pursuing you and he's loving you and he's into you. What's the temperature of your heart? He says, love God with all your soul. It's your identity. Do you get more of your purpose in life and your meaning in life out of your work, out of your vocation? Does all your thoughts go to moving up the corporate ladder and then one day you're going to be happy and you're finally going to prove to all the people who picked on you in life that you are better than they are, that you made something out of your life? Where is your identity? Where's your psyche? Is it in your kids? Moms, don't take a 15-year hiatus from your relationship with God because you've got your kids and you can find all your meaning and purpose in them. And then as soon as they get on their way out of school, your identity implodes and you've got to do this whole new, you've got to go find out who God is again and find out who you are again. 
because you spent 18 years putting your identity and building your identity on these little kids. Jesus says, love God with all your soul, all your identity. He says, love God with all your mind. If I was honest, I think the current climate of our church, not just this church, but like the church, Big C Church, they don't know how to love God with their mind. We want to come to church and we want to feel a warm fuzzy and we want to feel connected to God, but we don't want to do the hard intellectual work of loving God. Not only this, parents, Loving God with all your mind. Do you think about that when you're discipling your children? I don't have time to go into it. This is one of many places where we can build out a whole theology of Christian education for our children. Jesus says, love God with all your mind. And we want to say, well, that means Sunday morning, I'm going to give him a good lesson over devotions over there. Or we're going to read a little Bible story at night. That's not loving God with all your mind. Loving God with all your mind means every single thing you learn in the universe, every book you read, every subject you take, you work it back in how it relates to God. Can I tell you this? That the public school system, it's a faulty system. It's a failed system because it doesn't believe in God. You can't teach anything without God as the source. Math doesn't work unless there's a God of order in the universe. Math doesn't work. From accidents and chaos and poof, there it comes. Math has no meaning outside of a creator who makes it work. Physics, biology, None of it works. What what does the public school system want to do? It worked 50 years ago because they hijacked Christianity beliefs. Common values that we share in a creator, in order, in even values. They hijack that and they try to teach it from the middle. Everybody believes in that. Let's just teach it from the middle here. We're going to start at this point. We're going to teach biology. We're going to teach math. We're not going to show it how it connects back to the creator. You can't do it. Now, does that mean, what am I saying, that all Christian parents cannot send their kids to public school? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. What what I'm saying is, if you choose or forced to send your kids to public school, your work is cut out for you. That means you're going to have to be understanding what they're being taught. You're going to be preemptively teaching them the history of the world. You're going to be preemptively teaching them creation. You have to be preemptively teaching them how everything comes back to God. You're going to be doing all that. Then you're going to have to be going on the backside of it and correcting all the garbage that they're learning. You're going to be doing all of that. It's very, it's very difficult. Do I almost think it's impossible. I almost think it's impossible. When you look at God's commandments, how to raise up our children in the way that they should go, how we should use all of our mind to worship God. I almost think it's impossible. To do that. Now, is it a requirement? Is it mandatory? Absolutely not. It's grace. It's grace. But Jesus here says, love God with all your mind. 
When I'm studying physics, I want to be blown away that God did this. He built the world like this. These laws are true and real and constant because he is true and real and constant. Man, I could go off on that. I did go off on that. Whoop, there we go. And then lastly, Jesus says, love God with all your strength. Relativists. God is love. And the son of God says, love takes all your effort. Love takes all your strength. Love is hard work. Your relationship with God is going to be hard work. Now, we don't work our way into a relationship with God. I'm about to get to that. But studying, reading, meditating, taking your Bible and going on a long walk and trying to meditate on a psalm and thinking about God, all of those things take work. Loving your spouse takes work. Loving your kids take work. Loving God is going to take work and effort on your part as well. You don't fall into it. Now, how are you doing at that? Loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Anybody feeling really confident right now? Or are you like, I won't ask Jesus any more questions. Can you honestly say that you are good at loving God with all your everything? See, the moralists among us, we have a problem. Sometimes we obey God, but we don't do it out of love. We might even obey God grudgingly with white-knuckled obedience. You can tell we don't like forgiving people when they hurt us. We don't like loving people who are different from us. We don't like loving those who are poor and weak among us. But then the relativists have a problem too. Jesus says that love takes work, takes effort. It's going to take all of my strength. Love is not something we fall into. It takes hard work. That means loving God is going to take work, reading, listening, thinking, feeling, and committing. And loving others is going to take every ounce of effort that you have. Love is not easy. And if you think love is easy, then you've got a cheap version of love. What did Jesus mean then when he told this man, You're not far from from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. I pray this is where we are right now. This scribe understood that nothing but perfect love for God and obedience to the law could get him into God's kingdom. The only way to get past this law, this huge wall, is perfect love to God and perfect love to others. That's the first step. For all of us, you have to see the wall. You have to admit that there's a giant wall that you've got to scale. Perfect love for God and perfect love for others if you want to get into his kingdom. God's law is higher than any of us could ever achieve. Love God with everything all the time. Love others like you love yourself. Listen to this. We sang this song last week. A preacher in 1763. That's 250 years ago. He wrote this hymn that we sing around here called Rock of Ages. This is what he says. He comes to the wall. Here, he's the scribe right now. 
who's not far from the kingdom. This is how he describes the wall that we have to climb. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. He's saying the law's too high. My labors, I can't scale the wall. Could my zeal, no respite, no. My passion, my heart, I'm on fire for God. Not that much. Could my tears forever flow? My, gr- my grief, my repentance, my remorse that I've broken the law of God. My tears could flow forever and still not be enough to atone for my sin. All for sin could not atone. That's what he says. Thou must save and thou alone. This is what he says in verse three. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is where the scribe is. I pray this is where we are this morning. Until we realize that we can never, ever please God on our own, we can never fulfill the law's demands to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Only then will we see our great need for Jesus and the need that we have that's already been fulfilled. Listen, that wall, Jesus climbed it for us. He climbed it for us. He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. He loved God perfectly with all his mind, all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, all the time. And he loved the neighbor as he loved himself. Jesus obeyed it perfectly. And he climbs over the law. And if we get on his back, he climbs back over and we get to go into the kingdom. On the back of Jesus, simply to the cross I cling. Rock of Ages says it like this. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. How do we get into the kingdom? By being hidden in Christ. By being in Jesus the perfect one. You guys know about the Trojan horse, right? Horse, they built, they put, put warriors inside it. They thought that it was the, uh, 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 to honor the king and honor the gods. So they bring the Trojan horse in behind the gates and then out of it come the enemy warriors. Jesus is our Trojan horse. In him, we get into the kingdom. It's the only way in. You can never scale the walls. They're impenetrable. You have to be perfect, love God with everything all the time and love neighbor with yourself. But in Christ, we get in. And here's what's special and unique. When we see that we don't love God all the time, and yet God loved us in Jesus, so we're outside the walls and we need help and God sends Jesus to rescue us, that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to live the life that we should live and die the death that we deserve. When we believe that, we're placed in Christ, and this is what happens. The love of God, the agape, one-way love of God, actually comes inside of our hearts, and it changes us in such a way that it actually produces what the law demands. 
Listen, nobody can work up the love of God. The love of God has to be poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And it says the Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts and it causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Intimacy, warmth, emotional connection. It says, Daddy. The Spirit does that. When we receive the love of God in Christ, it actually pours that love into our hearts. And now we're now, for the first time in our lives, capable of loving God and loving others and fulfilling the law's commands. Not perfectly, of course, but still, the love of God for us enables us to love God and neighbor in ways that we are absolutely incapable of before our conversion. So that's what he says here. Have you, here's the two steps. Step one, you're not far from the kingdom. Do you see the impossibility of the commands? Step one, praise God. Step two, will you believe in Christ who fulfilled all the law's commands for you in your place? Will you? God of love loved you so much to send his one and only son to give you that love so that you can love him and love others with it. What he commands, he gives. What he gives, he commands. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for being a God of love. Not theoretically, painfully, practically, pragmatically. You loved us, Jesus. You loved the Father with all your strength. We see that on the cross. We see that on the cross where you're forgiving enemies. where you're enduring the worst humanity has to offer, beating, shaming, murder, blasphemy. You're enduring it because you love us and you love the Father. We thank you for that. I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would um, regenerate us. You would give us new hearts. Cause us, those in this room have never been born again, cause them to be born again right now. Give them the faith to believe and that we would respond and we would love the only God, the one God who's shown his love for us by sending his one and only son. And as the believers who've been baptized this morning come down to partake in communion, that we would be reminded how much you love us, how far your strength took you, that you were broken, your body was split open with the bread that our God was broken like the bread is broken. And that your blood was spilled as the wine and the grape juice filled the cups this morning. That we would take those thankfully, gratefully. And we would be eating and drinking the love of Christ this morning. And you would go with us as we love you and love neighbor throughout our week. Pray all this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.